The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present this recording from Saver 2013 in New York City. This recording is from Saturday, June 15th. Gestalt Philosophy, blending a barrel-aged sour beer, featuring Andy Parker from Avery Brewing Company. Okay, we're going to try to get started here. I understand beers are still being poured, but that's fine. Uh, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Andy Sparhawk. Uh, I'm the craft beer program coordinator for the Brewers Association. Welcome to Savor, an American craft beer and food experience brought to you by the Brewers Association. Thank you very much for coming. A uh, couple of uh, housekeeping uh, notes uh, before we get started. Um, want to remind everyone to silence your phones uh, so we can allow uh, Mr. Andy Parker to uh, not be disturbed. Um, He's, he's a cranky guy for sure. Uh, like to thank our host distributor, Manhattan Beer Distributing, uh, and Hopman uh, Custom Brewery Apparel, uh, for allowing us to put on this site sort of event. Thank you very much. Uh, and wanted to let you guys know that this event or salon is being recorded by Craft Beer Radio. Uh, so if you guys have any questions, I'm going to run over to you and, and let you speak through the microphone, or, or Andy will repeat it. Uh, those recordings will not only be on Craft Beer Radio, but also on craftbeer.com. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Andy Parker. Andy Hollywood Parker has been at Avery Brewing Company since 2002 and has nearly done nearly every job there is in his 11 years. In 2006, he started Avery's barrel aging program with 30 wine barrels. That has now expanded to over 250, and if he had the chance, he would double that overnight. He enjoys long walks in the mountains, <laughs> candlelight dinners, East Coast underground hip-hop, Tom Waits, and drinking Avery IPA at least 400 times a day. Please join me in welcoming a Andy Parker. Well, thank you, Dr. Sparhawk. And uh, I don't know if I sent a typo to you on my little bio there or not, but I actually drink Avery IPA 400 days a year. What did I say? 400 times a day. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty good drinker, but I don't think I can do that, man. I'll work on it. So I'm kind of moving stuff around a little bit here because uh, I'm a pacer, and I need to pace around. I can't, like, sit in a seat. I get pretty excited when I talk about beer. Uh, you might find that uh, during this little talk, I might get a little tangential at some point, and I, I honestly might need your help getting back to where I was and what I was talking about. That'll happen sometimes. But I have this handy-dandy outline here that is going to help me guide all this stuff through. So... Uh, as, a, as a really quick pre-intro, um, you have five beers in front of you, and I'll explain all that in a little bit. Um, you don't necessarily need to wait for you know, half an hour for me to tell you to drink each individual one. You're all adults, so I think you can fend for yourselves. And feel free to like, smell them, taste them, and, uh, and think about what you're tasting the whole time. Um, but just as a favor, try not to kill off any of the in individual uh, beers. Uh, by the end of the talk, I want you guys to be able to go back and forth with the Saver Blend 2013 and with each of the individual component parts that you can try to like really parse out the flavors and uh, learn about it. Because, yeah, we could hang out here and just drink all day, and I'll drink with all of you. But this talk is really fun because it, it's all about the education. I feel like there's, a, there's, not, a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of written word. Or like, I mean, there's not like a book that you can pick up that says, Here, here's how to make a sour beer. Here's how to taste a sour beer. There's not a lot of that out there. So I've been giving a small series of talks out in Colorado, and this is kind of a spin-off of that, that are designed to, to help people understand like, what you're actually drinking when you're, when you're tasting a sour beer and how these things are made a little bit. 
Um, in my, in my humble opinion, saying, like someone coming up to me and going, I like sour beers. Well, there's a wide range of, of sour beers out there. Tons of flavors. You can have 3% alcohol blonde beers. You can have 13% alcohol dark beers. So for someone to come up to me and say, I like sour beers, that's like coming up to me and going, I like a meat. All right, well, what kind of meat do you like? You know, and, and you can kind of parse things out from there. Um, so here's the way we're gonna, we're gonna roll into this talk. Gonna do a quick introduction about, uh, about Avery and the Vero program there and uh, how it got started and kind of what we're doing these days. Um, then we're gonna talk a little bit about how Avery makes sour beer in particular. Um, and that doesn't mean that that's how anyone else makes sour beer, but it's a good intro to how we do it. Um, then we're gonna talk about the blending process for this particular beer. And it's a really good template for, yes, more beer. This is all working out. It's a really good template for how we made this particular blend, and like I said, we'll taste, we'll taste beers throughout it. We're not gonna like do all the talking and then load all the beer drinking at the very end, because what fun is that, right? Um, so, like I said, while we're hanging out and talking, feel free to taste some beer. And, uh, and I don't know about you guys, but I'd much rather be talked with than talked to. So if you guys have a question, uh, raise a hand. Uh, we'll try to, like if I'm missing something, missed some crucial import important part, like drink your beer, uh, raise a hand, ask a question, let me know, because I'd much rather talk with you. So, the Avery Barrel Program, or actually, quick thing on me, just real fast. Uh, I've been at Avery for 11 years. Um, way back in the day, my first volunteering job at a brewery was actually at uh, Commonwealth Brewing Company in Rockefeller, in Rockefeller Square. Like, during, the, during winter, you could like, look out and you know, check out the tree. So I just want to know, does anyone here remember Commonwealth Brewing Company that was in Rockefeller Square? We have one winner. Um, it was a while ago, the last time uh, I passed by that building was maybe nine years ago, and I think Disney bought it, and it was a two-floor Pokemon merchandise store. Nowhere near as exciting to me. So, uh, the Avery Barrel Program uh, actually started back around like 2004. We actually got a handful of barrels from uh, Vinny out at Russian River, he's a good friend of ours. And he got us some white barrels and some, some white wine barrels, some red wine barrels, and some port barrels. And we're like, oh sweet, barrels, this is easy, we'll just throw some beer into the barrels. So we threw our Belgian Golden into the white wine barrels, threw, a, uh, threw our Belgian Quad into the red barrels, and threw our big hoppy barley wine into the port barrels. And Salvation and Reverend, after about six months, actually tasted pretty good. Picked up a lot of tannic qualities, really tasty. Uh, the Hog Heaven, however, was terrible. Uh, we basically aged it in these port barrels for four months, and it was basically like we just left our beer out in the sun for four months. It oxidized, it was gnarly, it did not taste good. But the, su the successes of those first two uh, sets of barrels kind of piqued my interest. And, uh, and I started doing lots of random experiments, like getting fresh wine barrels, getting fresh, uh, like fresh whiskey barrels, fresh rum barrels, anything I could get my hands on. Started to do a lot of experiments. Um, and then right around 2006, you know, I'd done enough experiments, I finally felt like I had kind of a hold on things. I kind of went to Adam Avery and said, hey man, you know, we're at full capacity, why don't you let me, you know, buy these 30 red wine barrels and we'll make 100% Britannomyces fermented dark beer. It'll be good, right? And he actually just went, without hesitating, he's like, you know, I was hoping that we would start up a barrel program someday and that, that'd be awesome. So let's just do it. I'm like, yes, best boss in the world. Um, now, that, the, the result of those, that, that first 30 wine barrel project became Brabant, which was the first release in our Barrel Age series. We're really, really good with names, really imaginative. So the Barrel Age series is a series of one-off beers aged in barrels. And they can be anything. They can be sour beers, uh, giant 17% you know, alcohol stouts in rum barrels. They can be just about anything. But it's a really fun thing for us to do um, 
because they're these one-off batches. Uh, they're things that we don't intend to make again. And I frequently call myself the experimental arm of the experimental brewery. Uh, Aerie does a lot of wacky stuff, and uh, I get to be the extra wacky part. He's good times. Uh, somewhere along the way, I kind of weaseled my way into my dream job, and I'm pretty happy about it. Um, so the other thing that we do is actually the really imaginatively named annual barrel series. And that's a couple of, uh, of beers that we do make over and over again. Um, we're only on the second and third batches, respectively, of Uncle Jacob Stout and Rumpkin. But those are giant, you know, 16% to 18% alcohol, non-sour beers in uh, rum, whiskey barrels, that sort of thing. So we kind of have these two tiers like there. We have the, the barrel age series and the annual barrel series. And I never get them mixed up, I swear. Uh, we also have a tap room at the brewery where uh, it's, you know, we're way in the back of an industrial sector. It's maybe not the most beautiful place on the outside, but we've made this really nice tap room back there where you can go back from the hustle and bustle of Boulder. And uh, I know you know New Yorkers, you're hustling and bustling all over the place. Um, but at the tap room, we were, we were getting so many calls for sour beer that eventually I convinced Adam, like, look, I'd really love to make a draft only series of sour beers. And that allows me to just kind of do whatever I want back in the barrel aging cellars and, and put things on tap there. So uh, that series is actually called the Aramita series. Uh, Aramita is Latin for hermit, as in it doesn't leave the house. So they just kind of hang out there. Now, the blend that you're actually going to taste today came from the Aramita 5 blending sessions. Um, I was back in the barrel aging cellars and making a lot of different blends and uh, eventually ended up coming with one that we really liked, up, liked for the tap room. This is kind of an offshoot of that. Like I said, got to look back sometimes. Now, the specific kind of beer that we're going to talk about today. You can make sour beers that are one, one project. Let's say you just make a 6% blonde sour ale, and then you're going to let it kind of marinate in, the, in those barrels for a good long time and start to roll along. The kind of beer that we're talking about today is a kind of a different monster. Um, the Saver blend is blended from four different base beers, all made in very different ways all soured in our, beijing, in our uh, barrel aging cellar, but all very, very different beers. And when I was you know, preparing these talks, I actually realized that over the last seven years, I've made more of these beers, like where it's, where it's a beer constructed from all these different parts, than, uh, than even single batches of beer. And I think there's, there's a lot of value in really being able to taste all these different disparate things and really come up with something better. And the reason this talk is called Gestalt Theory, um, it's basically the idea that the sum is greater than, or, wait, yeah, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And the whole thing is, if you combine all these individual parts, they're okay on their own, they're pretty good. But if you can make something just amplified, something so much better out of those little parts in the end, that, that's, I mean, that's what you're after. So, before we uh, go to the next part of me talking at you, we should taste a beer, because beer is fun and I like beer. We should taste the Saver Blend 2013. A um, couple quick things. Palate fatigue can, uh, can kind of be a monster. So you wouldn't want to like, go through all five of these and just drink them real quick. Um, your palate will get fatigued after even three to four samples. And this is actually why I requested one of the earlier, uh, earlier salons here, because I wanted people to come in with really fresh palates and be able to taste everything. Uh, if you came in here at 9.45 after drinking at this awesome event for like three hours, you'd have a really good time. My jokes would be really funny, and you wouldn't learn anything. So I kind of like it that we all get to sit here on like really clean palates and try things. Um, another fun thing to think about when you're tasting beer, just as a, as a quick rudimentary thing, um, I feel like there's, there are really good ways to taste beer. You know, I've done a lot of professional tasting over the last 10 years, and some professional drinking, that's a whole different monster. 
But when you pick up your salon blend, don't just like take it and go and do this giant sniff. Uh, what's really important, actually, is to give it some light swirls. And you really want to take, I, honestly, a perfect glass like this that funnels aromatics up towards you. You want to give it a swirl and then stick your nose in there and actually give it a few little sniffs. Um, if you do a giant sniff, it'll actually overwhelm your olfactory receptors. And then all of a sudden, you've lost the, the ability to deal with subtlety and smaller flavors. Where if you just give it a good swirl and little bits, you can start to pick up a lot of things. Yes, sir. Oh no, you don't have the saver blend. Help! We don't want an emergency here. Yes, uh, if you don't have a beer in your hand, that's, I mean, that's just against everything that I stand for. Uh -huh. So, just to talk about flavors on this for a little bit, and we'll, we'll come back to this theme quite a bit. Um, when we originally started blending this saver blend, um, I was kind of looking for, this is actually blended about six months ago, uh, so it was, you know, more like a wintertime sour. And we were coming up with the original idea for this beer. It's like, you know what, I want it to be a big, rich, not, a, not like a lighter, easy drink and sour. This, this thing is kind of like a sour beer at the training wheels, kind of thrown off into the ditch and letting you ride along. Um, the goal is to have something with a lot of big lactic acid, a lot of big acetic acid. I wanted a lot of oak tannic qualities in there. I was hoping to get some red wine character from some fresh red wine barrels that I had around. Um, kind, of, kind of going for a little of everything. Um, like I said, there's this huge array of different sour beers that are out there. Some are easier drinking, like Berliner Weisses and things like that. This is supposed to be more of a monster, but a good monster. A very tameable monster. Um, so, let's talk real quick about how Avery Brewing Company makes sour beers. Because I do feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I don't even know if I'd say misinformation about there about how to make sour beers, because there are tons of ways to make them. Um, just like there are so many different styles of sour beers, there are many, many different ways to make sour beers. And I would never want to come up here and say, oh yes, we have absolutely mastered sour beers, we know everything about them, and here's the way to make them. Everyone makes them different. Lost Abbey is making it differently, Cantillon makes it differently, Dre Fontaine makes something differently, um, Russian River makes them differently, so does New Belgium. Like, everyone's got their own ways. So, just because I stand up here and say, like, here's how to make a sour beer, it's like, no, this is how Avery Brewing Company happens to make them. And we've found a flavor profile that we really like, so we kind of roll with that. You're basically starting with a primary fermentation in a steel tank uh, with normal Saccharomyces yeast. And for a vocabulary lesson, Saccharomyces yeast are every lager and ale yeast you've ever had that make 99.99999% of the world's beers. Um, and in that case, in steel, we're pretty much looking for nicer, cleaner flavors, you know. I mean, we're even about to do a couple uh, sour beers coming up where the primary fermentation is coming from a lager yeast going for like the cleanest flavors possible so that later on when we put it into barrels, we can let other things kind of go to town in there. Um, and almost every sour beer that we've ever made has its own recipe. It's totally from scratch. You know, we're, we're designing something from the beginning. Um, we, we do have times where we'll take some other beer that has existed and we'll kind of move it into barrels and those are fun side projects. But if we're going to make something like, for example, the first three beers on here, they're beers from scratch that we've made so we can learn a lot about, you know, the flavors and I don't know, learning's fun. Um, so after it's gotten through its primary fermentation in steel, after that we're looking for a secondary fermentation and a souring in those oak barrels. And so there are a number of organisms that we're using to do that. First of all, we have a whole other segment of yeast called Britannomyces yeast. Um, and Britannomyces, they're like, they're, they're like, well, there are Britannomyces yeast falling on us right now, all over the place. Would any of those make good beer? 
Maybe, maybe not. Um, but but Britannomyces yeast, when they're classified, they're they're a little, they're they're kind of voracious little buggers. Um, they're very useful in eating up big long chain sugars that the Saccharomyces yeast couldn't really deal with, and uh, and making a beer really really dry. But for better or worse, they're also going to make a lot of like horsey and rustic flavors. And these are like technical terms like horsey and horse blanket and musty. And some people say like grandma's basement and stuff like that. And it sounds really weird to think like, oh yeah, I want to drink that. Well, you actually might if it's used well in conjunction with a lot of other things. Um, and one of the one one big misconception out there is that Britannomyces yeast make sour beer, and that's not true. Britannomyces yeast do not really make much lactic or acetic acid. Uh, they make a tiny bit of acetic acid, but nothing that you would ever notice. Britannomyces yeast are used because they're really good at drying things out, and they make these funky horsey flavors. In order to get all that sourness, all that lactic and acetic acid, um, you're pretty much looking at some combo of lactobacillus, which is a fun little bacteria that. Uh, it generally only works really well in the, like at the beginning of a fermentation in lower ABV beers, and it makes a you know a small amount of lactic acid. And when I'm talking lactic acid, because I'm honestly after eight years of doing this, I'm still trying to come up with terms to describe what lactic acid smells and tastes like. But in general, lactic acid really doesn't smell like anything. You can have a, a, a Berliner Weiss, which is, tends to be a, a high lactic acid sort of beer. You can smell it. it it'll barely even smell sour at all. But then you put it in your flavor hole, and all of a sudden your salivary glands start going and just like going to town because that acidity is in there. Um, so you're using lactobacillus to make lactic acid, but we are actually using a lot of our house pediococcus strain. Um, we we discovered well, we basically stumbled on a really good pediococcus strain in a wine barrel about eight years ago, and we've actually cultured it up over the years into hundreds and hundreds of barrels, and it's what we use for almost all of our souring. Now, pediococcus is a funny little monster. Um, it makes a lot of lactic acid. It can make a ton. But pediococcus has a lot of other things going on in it, too. And so it can actually make off flavors, like uh, diacetyl is a big one. Diacetyl is the buttery flavor you get when you go to the movies and you squirt that weird butter stuff onto your popcorn. That's basically just pure diacetyl, that, that rich, buttery thing. Diacetyl is a normal byproduct of yeast um, and, and of things like pediococcus. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we want it in a sour beer. On a sour beer, we're generally looking for, I mean, dry and acidic, quite honestly. If you add any diacetyl into there, that sweetness can really cancel that out, so it's not so good. The great thing is, and this is where it starts to get a little mind-boggling, that people have figured this out over hundreds of years. Um, Pediococcus and Britannomyces work really well together. Pediococcus happens to make diacetyl. Britannomyces happens to eat diacetyl and turn it into other flavor compounds that, that work well over time. So... In any sour beer that we've made, although this is not the only way to make sour beers, there are many ways, we're always using Britannomyces and our house Pediococcus to kind of work in conjunction with each other. And, you know, it's, it's a very good friendship. Uh, the one other big thing that, that frequently comes into play on sour beers is uh, Acetobacter. And this is, Acetobacter makes acetic acid. In fact, all it wants to do in its life is make acetic acid. And all it needs to do for, to, to do that, or all, it, all the ingredients it needs are ethanol, and oxygen. You give it those two things, and acetobacter will keep making acetic acid. And acetic acid is vinegar. So you ask yourself, like, well, if I let acetobacter run rampant in my beer, all of a sudden I might just have a big cup of vinegar. And do you want to chug a big cup of vinegar? I know I don't. But, acet but acetic acid can be a really good component in sour beers. Um, and in a non-humid place like Colorado, um, those barrels can actually dry out. 
when the barrels dry out a little bit over time, the, those, uh, those wooden staves can actually pull apart a little bit. The wood will become more porous and more oxygen flows into the barrel. And when it does that, and the acetobacter is everywhere, all of a sudden more acetic acid is being created. So I can actually control how much acetic acid I want in a beer by aging it a little longer. Or if I think it's great right now and it has a lot of lactic acid from our earlier uh, bacteria additions, but I don't want acetic acid in there, I can pull that out earlier. But it's pretty rare when I leave something in a barrel more than, more than two years. But a lot of this stuff can take a good long while. I'd say that our pediococcus will do most of its work in the first, I don't know, um, two to three months. But then you're relying on Britannomyces for another three months to clean up some of the stuff that the pediococcus made. So you're looking at a bare minimum of like six months to, to make an oak barrel-aged sour beer in kind of the way that we're doing it. Um, Uh, so he's asking if we are adding them at the same time or if we're adding all the PDO and bread at the same time. I'm actually adding both at the same time. I'm usually doing it right at the time of barreling because I have this nice warm beer, it's ready to go, um, and I'm letting them both go into there and, and go to town at once. And I'm, but I'm generally, seeing, I'm generally seeing the Bretts do all their secondary fermentation where they're just eating up sugars. That's happening pretty quickly. That's, that's a month. But it'll take a few months for that pediococcus to make lactic acid, and then I might see a little uptick in a little diacetyl and things like that. And if I do, the Britannomyces is still kicking in there and, and could be kicking for years. Britannomyces, like I said, are voracious little buggers. Uh, Britannomyces can actually live, like if you empty out a barrel that had Britannomyces in it, some of those yeasts can actually live on the cellulose in the wood for months and months without any other food. And uh, you might be able to put beer in there later, and those Britannomyces might come back to life because you just gave them a really good food source. So, we should go on to beer number two here. Because drinking beer, as we all know, is very fun. So, this one is called Nile. Uh, this is a code name for a, for a project that we had that was originally called Nile. Um, but they're actually, like the, the, the four barrels that made up this beer, they're actually what Tommy Arthur always calls orphan barrels. A little while back we made a sour beer called Odeo Equum. And Odeo Equum was a Nice little 7% alcohol beer infused with raspberries in the primary fermenter and then aged in fresh Cabernet barrels with our house PDO. We had, I think, 28 of those barrels. And uh, back when we were doing the blending sessions for Odeo Equum, and we do a ton of blinding, blind tasting sessions where I'm bringing to our best, like, our best tasters of the brewery like four different samples of cold carb beer, right? And I'll ask them to tell me what's the best. Simply, you don't need to tell me exactly why, I just want to know what you guys want to drink. It turned out with this particular blend on Odeo Equum, there were these three beers that had tons more raspberry than the other 25. Still don't know exactly why, but that's, that's the mystery of barrel aging sometimes. You gotta embrace that chaos. And I knew those three beers, that was the start of that beer. That, like, that's the main base. After that, I started adding beers in like little banks of five. So came up with like, you know, the three main barrels and then added five, added 10, added 15, added 20. It just so turned out that the Actually, sorry, I went up to 25. It just so turned out that the absolute best one in all the blind tastings that we did only included 23 of the barrels. So we had five barrels left over. Four of those barrels still tasted phenomenal. They were as good as everything else in that batch, but they just didn't happen to make it into this particular blend. But those four barrels, I quickly realized when I started to do like all these big blending sessions, it tastes phenomenal. Um, nice raspberry, good lactic acid, big red wine, um, and a lot of oak tannic flavors. 
And I kind of figured right off the bat, okay, you know, while I'm going to start doing some blending sessions, this is, this is my first bass beer. You know, when I think of what, what we were intending to make with this blend, like, we're, we're almost there, right? I mean, th this has, you know, most of the flavors that I was already looking for. I'm like, oh, this, this is going to be the easiest blending sessions ever. I already have my base beer. Um, like I said, if I don't go back to this, uh, this outline every once in a while, things get really messy. I'll go way too tangential and we'll end up talking about all sorts of things. Maybe the weather. So, so with the Nile here, it's like, okay, we have our first base beer. That's great. But where are we going to go from there? I've tasted it warm and flat. We, we need to move on and start like, finding other things. So while making this blend, we didn't just start off with four base beers that we had a chance of using. I started off with a bank of 11 base beers in 40 different barrels. And I spent many, many days going back into the cellars and tasting barrel after barrel, getting gravities, getting pHs. And then I would take warm, flat samples from those beers and bring them to other people, not even tell them what they were. Just try to, try to get their opinion on something. Because one question I always get a lot, like I'm um, you know, talking to people about beer and making beer, the question I always get a lot is like, oh, so you made this beer, right? Yes, but I'm more of, I'm more of like a shepherd. Like I, I always call myself the barrel herder. I can't tell these barrels what to do, and I'm just kind of pushing them in a certain direction, hopefully it'll work. And I never want the barrel program to just rely on my palate. We have so many talent, talented people at Avery, I never want it to be the Andy Parker show. It's way better if we kind of, we don't remove me from it, we still want my opinion, but I want to be able to make blends and take them to people and get totally blind, uh, blind feedback on, on what's going on. Because, like, so we, we have these, uh, we have these stainless steel bottles that we use. So just imagine a little 12 ounce stainless steel thing. Because tasting, tasting a beer warm and flat, that's not really the way that it's going to be consumed in the end, right? But in the barrels, it's all warm and flat. We can take these stainless steel bottles, I can pour a warm, flat sample into that bottle, put a bottle cap on it, and I can actually carb it. And uh, within about 20 minutes, we have a cold carb sample that I can try. So while I was tasting all these individual barrels, you'd be like, well, I, you know, maybe I'm getting something out of this warm, flat barrel. It tastes okay, but I'm not really sure about it. So I would make a cold carb sample and basically I'd start bringing it to people in the brewery and get totally blind, totally honest feedback on things. And, and it's amazing what blind tasting will do for you. Um, and you know, when I brought people samples of this, they're like, oh wow, can I have more? It's kind of as simple as that. It's like, all right, that's the first base, no problem. Um, and you know what, while we're at it, let's, uh, this skips ahead on my little plan a little bit, but let's taste Dark Sour while we're at it. So, Dark Sour V2. I know these, these code names for all the beers are a little odd, but I, you know, I didn't want to make up different names because I'd confuse myself. So Dark Sour V2. This is actually kind of like a second effort uh, from us. We did a bottled beer called Imitus um, about three years ago. Uh, imitus means cruel and harsh, because Imitus was the most sour thing we've, I, I think we've ever made. Uh, it was this big dark beer, massive lactic acid, some acetic acid, um, and it was aged in fresh Zinfandel barrels. And there was so much lactic acid made on this beer, and I loved it so much, that even though we're only doing beers one time and never releasing them again, at this point I'm like, you know what, I need to do some experimentation. I want to see if we can remake this beer. So I'd made the exact same beer, but not in fresh wine barrels, in neutral barrels. And that's actually what Dark Sour V2 is. Um, I was actually a little shocked to see that we were able to pretty much reproduce that beer. 
this thing has a nice, like, nice big lactic acid where like, I drink it and like, my salivary glands just start going. Um, I still get some oak tannins from it. It's, you know, it's not quite like you're chewing on a piece of oak or like a piece of wood, but, but it's kind of in there. It's almost like a little scrapey because of those oak tannins. I'm not really getting any red wine flavor because it wasn't in fresh red, fresh red wine barrels. It was in barrels that have been used, uh, I think, twice at the time. But so when we were talking about how to, like, how to go about our blending sessions, like, oh, we have these two beers that I already love. These are incredible. We have Nile. We have Dark Sour. I mean, and if I just... If I just read my own descriptions of Nile and of Dark Sour and of what we expected this blend to taste like, I mean, it's like, oh, this is going to be the easiest blending session. We're going to put these two beers together. It has all the components we need, right? Why wouldn't it work? And this is where it starts to get fun and interesting. Those stainless steel bottles, we have four of them. So I can go back to our blind panel and go there with four different samples. And let's say sample A just has Nile and Dark Sour. Sample B has Nile Dark Sour and one barrel of something else, like non-grape ape, which is the next sample. Maybe the next one is some Nile, a little less Dark Sour, and, you know, B or C. And then the next one, you know, you, you're, so you're kind of like taking your, taking your good solid parameters, those beers, beers that you like, and then adding things onto it. And in the very first blending session that I did, where I'm like, oh yeah, that one with Nile and Dark Sour, Easy home run. I bet I won't have to add anything else. That was the beer kicked off the table very first by every single person in the tasting panel because it was too boring. Um, and and this and that's that's kind of where it gets fun to me. Um, you know what? We should taste number three here, because, like I said, I'll drink with you. Um, number three is an interesting monster. Uh, it's called Non Grape Ape. There is vaguely a reason for that. There's another bottle beer that, that we made a little while back. It's a, it was a grape beer hybrid called Recolte Sauvage. 30% of the fermentables came from Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. It was uh, aged on those Cabernet Sauvignon grapes in the primary fermenter and then aged in Cabernet Sauvignon barrels. So kind of a monster. The weird thing is, when we made the beer, we made too much wort for it. So I had just extra wort, extra liquid sugar, liquid gold sitting right there with nowhere to go. So I actually sprinted down to the barrel aging cellars found two empty barrels that had just been emptied like uh, about a week before and drove them up there and shot the word into there and did a 100% Britannomyces, 100% barrel fermentation on this sucker. Um, and then, honestly, I just let those two barrels sit. I, I half forgot about them. They, I tasted them every once in a while and they didn't taste all that great. Uh, one kind of tasted like raspberries, the other, I don't know, tasted like a sweat sock for a good long while, um, which is, and not, not, not in a good way. Not, not good at all. Um, but when I was tasting, you know, those 11 base beers and the 40, and 40 barrels for this, I started tasting these, I started tasting the lone two barrels of non-grape ape. And I thought, you know that? That tastes okay, but, it, but it's not awesome. Um, when we talk about the flavors on this, if you look at the list there of like what I thought it added to this particular blend. So, funky beer aromas, tropical fruit beer flavor, or fruit brett flavors ethyl acetate, and some acetic acid. So I do get a little vinegar, a little acetic acid that's actually pretty pleasant. But ethyl acetate, this one's kind of a beast. Uh, ethyl acetate, it's a normal byproduct of yeast. Um, our, a lot of our beers actually have you know, somewhat high amounts of ethyl acetate. Our IPA does, Reverend does. Ethyl acetate at low levels can be kind of fruity. Like I, I almost get like raspberry and cherry out of this. There's no fruit in this beer. No grapes, no fruit, nothing. But I get this raspberry cherry flavor that I believe is like ethyl acetate at lower levels. But this beer also 
it edges up into this level of ethyl acetate where once you pass a certain threshold, it actually starts to taste like nail polish remover. Um, and that, I mean, that is the, the technical term from it. And I get some nail polish remover in this. Like, to me, this is, as a solo barrel, this is a flawed barrel. Um, I would not drink this solo. I think it has fun things about it, but I do get this like kind of nail polishy burn down my throat. And if you can, uh, it's a fun little thing to do. It might be a little hard to swirl in here, but like definitely if you can cover up your glass a little bit, give it a little swirl, and it'll kind of trap those aromas in there, and then stick your nose in there and give it a couple little sniffs. And see if you can pick up on that nail polish sort of thing. But, and, th and th this is where blending to me gets fascinating. And this is where it blows my mind even as I'm doing these blind tastings with people at the brewery. One of the first, like one of the first big steps we made in blending this beer was that, yeah, we had now we had dark sour, the dark sour. Those tasted great, right? As soon as I added a little bit of this, 10%, 15%, all of a sudden, people's eyes were snapping up and going, oh, that one's good. And so I honestly think that it's, it's pretty amazing how, uh, how, to me, something like this flawed beer, and just because just it's something that I think is flawed and, and, uh, and doesn't happen to be my cup of tea, never let that dissuade you from liking a beer. Everyone's palate's different, subjectively and objectively. Uh, everyone will just prefer different things, but also people have different holes in their palates. There are a couple of compounds that I simply can't taste that occur in barrel-aged beers, and I need the help of my coworkers to find those barrels that might have those off flavors in them. It's kind of interesting. But it, like, is anyone getting that nail polishy sort of thing? Actually, quick show of hands. How many people really like this beer? Yeah, so I mean, so it's somewhere around half. So like I said, I mean, when I say the word flawed, that just means it's something that's, that's not for me. But it happens to contribute something pretty heavy to Saver Blend 2013. And it's kind of fun to go back and forth with the Saver Blend and see if you can pick out that little, that little ethyl acetate. I don't think you'll, you'll get nail polish out of there, but your palate might be very, very sensitive to it. You might be able to get that out of there. In any case, I find it's interesting and it blows my mind. Although my mind has retracted a lot over the years with a lot of beer intake, the neurons don't really talk like they should anymore. So, let's go on to the last one while we're here. So, this is a barrel of Reverend, uh, which is our Belgian quadruple, aged in a Leopold Brothers American whiskey barrel, and then we added our house pediococcus to sour it. Um, I had two oak barrels that were supposed to be exactly the same on this beer. Um, this one was the good one. There's another one that, that did not make it into the blind tastings because it was so horrendous. But basically, the, the staves of the oak dried out. Tons of oxygen flooded that thing, and it turned into like massive oxidation, like past the point of sherry and past the point of port and all that to where it just tasted like you were chewing on a cardboard sock. Just, just ugly, ugly stuff. But I do find it fascinating that these two barrels... Uh, both this barrel and its sister one were treated exactly the same way. They were filled at the exact same time. Um, nothing was different about them for a full year, and yet this one tasted pretty solid, uh, the other one not so much. Now this one, this to me is another one where I probably wouldn't drink this beer solo. So actually, I'd like to hear, I'd like to see a quick show of hands. How many people really like this Whiskey Sour Reverend? And, and, I, and I find that it's, it's like a half and half thing where some people I've, you know, I've, I've done some tastings at the brewery with these beers and there are guys at the brewery here like best beer on the table, better than your blend. Like, hey, fair enough. 
that's good fun. Well, I mean, you can't win them all. Um, but this one, so this definitely has like some oxidation, a little tannic action. It does have a nice lactic component, actually. But to me, it's a little, it's a little more oxidized than I would personally want a beer. Um, but that doesn't make it bad. Just just because I say I'm not a big fan of like that caramely oxidation, that doesn't mean that should dissuade you from liking it. And this was another case where, you know, we had Nile, we had Dark Sour, we had we had non-grape ape, and you know things are going well in our blending sessions. You know, we're on like day four of it, and I started adding in other things. And I remember tasting this, going, well, I don't really like it, but you know, in my initial description, I'm like, well, I'd like to have some more some more oak flavor, some tannic qualities, stuff like that. I don't I can't say I necessarily want the oxidative flavors, but maybe it'll help it out. And it just turned out that adding a very small amount, like five to seven percent of that beer, turned the saver blend into a whole different monster, where all of a sudden it had this depth, where before it was just kind of like, it's a thin sour beer. I got it. It all tastes good, but it's not spectacular, and people weren't like going, oh, you need to have that. Um, all of a sudden when adding this, and this, and this is a lot of the fun of it, like a lot of people ask me like, oh, so how do you know when you have something that's really good? How do you know when you're, when you're done blending? I don't think you can ever nail down the absolute perfect blend. If, with everyone in this room, we could take all these components and someone in here would come up with, I bet everyone in here can come up with a beer that they would like better than the Saver Blend 2013. But at some point, you pretty much, we're in our blind panels, we're uh, hanging out with, all, with like, the best tasters of the brewery, and, and when I put four big tasters in front of them, and eventually, eventually, after days and days and sometimes months of these sessions, Eventually, you get to a point where every single person at the table smells it and tastes it and goes, that's it. And when your best panel of tasters, all of them are in a total blind tasting, they don't know what they're drinking, but they all say it's awesome and they can't wait for you to put it on tap, uh, that's, that, that's kind of when you know you've hit it, at least for us. Um, I don't know. It is, it's... I've been in the brewing world for almost 15 years now. I can't think of anything more satisfying to me than when after months of doing these blending sessions, you finally come to this consensus with your coworkers and your peers where everyone is like, that's awesome. So it's kind of fun. Um, well, let's see. That's, that's the main gist of things here, people. But I bet there are a couple questions out there. Or so is my guess. I see a question. Or I see a hand. I guess I can't see a question. Mm -hmm. Good question. So he's asking, as a home brewer, is there a way to ferment a sour beer? Um, it can get a little complicated, but I would recommend trying to do one in oak. There's a reason that, that sour beers have been made in oak for years and years and years. I mean, the Belgians have been making sour beers for hundreds of years. We Americans are total rookies at it in the grand scheme of things. You know, I've been at it for about eight years. That is nothing. Um, you know, still learning along. Um, you can actually find like five gallon oak barrels. And you know, the whole thing with oak barrels, they're basically being used because they're an excellent house for those Britannomyces yeast and Pediococcus and stuff like that to really go to town on it. Um, as far as like, make, like it's getting all those ingredients for the sour beers like Britannomyces yeast and Pediococcus strains, Weist and White Labs both sell, um, like, both sell like big lambic blends and stuff like that. Um, I also have some homebrew friends who have had a lot of success by, for example, buying bottles of Cantillon and Dreyfontaine, uh, classic Belgian guises. 
drinking the beer, because that's very important, but then taking the living yeast at the bottom of it and honestly just sometimes going bloop and just dropping it straight into the barrel and then going to town. And after that, it's a patience game because you can definitely have barrels that taste incredible after a month and then go through like a really bad six stage and come back after a year. You might get really lucky and everything just flies along. So it's more like it, it, if you really want to make some sour beers, I would... You know, even go, with the, go in with a couple friends, buy a five-gallon oak barrel, and uh, start to inoculate with things and let it go to town. And then uh, taste early and often and patience. And at some point, you're going to have a barrel that's really bad. And, you know, that's okay. That's, that's kind of the chaos of, of working with barrels. It's not a stainless steel environment. It's not perfectly sterile. And at some point, I, I always say you kind of got to, like, embrace the chaos. You got to look at it and go, you know what? It might not work. But even if it doesn't work, I'm going to learn a lot from it, and I'll be able to do better next time. I think I answered the question, for the most part. Yes. Well, any other questions hanging out, people? Lots of questions. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to Geraldo. This is great. Um, I was just curious how you at Avery deal with having a section of totally clean beers and then a mm -hmm. section of very not clean beers, what kind of steps you guys take at, the, at your place to keep it separate? Great question, and that, that is one that I get a lot. Um, so these pedococcus and, and lactobacillus and Britannomyces strains, like I said, they're, they're voracious little critters. They can get into anything. You give them some place to live in, in a plastic line somewhere in a brewery, they can go there and live there, and they can survive attacks by chemicals and all sorts of things. Um, unless you really dial in your cleaning protocol. So like our, our bottled beers... Uh, they're going through our bottling line that 100% of Avery's beers go through. And we kind of, as of years ago, we kind of realized that, like, okay, you know what? As long as we know the thing is there, we can find a way to deal with it. So we've actually invested really, really heavily in our lab. Um, we actually have five full-time lab employees, which is as many as, like, I think, I think Deschutes has four or five, and they're eight times our size or something like that. We decided very early to invest really heavily on our labs so that we've figured out ways to detect all these things. We, like, you name an organism in here, our lab can find it. And they can find it all over a bottling line if it were to be there. And so they've, they have helped us come up with cleaning protocols to make sure that we never have our Britannomyces and our Pediococcus and all that in like our IPA. You know, every single one of our beers is tested at so many points that it's, it's the point of overkill, but I can't imagine something worse than, you know, Putting, a, putting one of these beers through our bottling line and then having it infect our IPA. That's bad news, man. So a, lo a lot of it is it's kind of knowing your enemy. You know, it's worth noting that there are Britannomyces he's falling on our bottling lines at all times. They're falling on us right now. You can't swat them out of the air, but you can try. But the way I figure it, if it's falling out of the air, it's always a, it's always a threat. But if you can identify your threat and you can put your entire threat through your bottling line and make those, bottled, make, make those bottled sour beers, you can figure out a way to deal with it. So, what's that? Oh, and are we using an ozonator? No, we're just using a, well, we have steam on demand and very strong chemicals that can, you know, really change the pH of the, of the cleaning solution. It's the, kind of the big thing. And having steam on hand is huge. And then after the steam happens, like every time we bottle a sour barrel-aged beer, um, it puts hours and hours and hours of work on our lab to go through and like test and swab every single part of our bottling line, um, but we think it's worth it. Certainly. How are we on time, Mr. Sparhawk? A couple minutes. One more question. Or... Yeah, sure. I love answering questions. 
Yes, ma'am. So she was saying that at the beginning, I was saying that, you know, I kind of had an idea of what I wanted for this particular blend. And so how do we, like, how do I come up with that idea for, like, what I want it to be? The best thing I can say is that I just want to make things that I want to drink. And, uh, and I really hadn't done a big, dark, blended sour of this caliber before, um, where it really has a huge lactic punch, a solid acetic punch, like that vinegar, like that little vinegar burn down the throat, that sort of thing. Um, so it really was me sitting around back around like October, November, probably drinking beers back in the barrel aging cellar going, you know what? The last, the last uh, taproom sour I did was a blonde ale infused with uh, blueberry and juniper, and I want to do something totally different than that. What do I want to drink right now? And it was like, you know what? I've never done such a big, dark, blended sour. So, you know, when in doubt, you make what you want to drink, and then you drink it, and then, you know, usually there's a little leftover for people. Depends on if it's Friday or not. Aha, I see a hand. Sir. Do I think it's unfair that we get such high quality water? Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually a little unfair. We, we, we are very lucky that we don't really have to do any water treatment we can use our Boulder Reservoir tap water to just make beer. We don't have to reverse osmosis it and strip everything out and rebuild. Um, it's, yes, we're, we're very, very lucky. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if you're a brewery in California, like, I'm, I'm not a water expert by, long, by any stretch, but everyone, all the brewers that I know in California have to like, use reverse osmosis on their water and then build back up like, the minerals that they want that are very important for yeast health and flavor and all that. And yeah, Boulder, we're, we're just kind of lucky that we can, we can just turn on the tap. It's so sweet. <laughs> Andy Parker, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming out, everybody. And, uh, and I'll be hanging around the booth most of the night. So if I miss something or anything, I mean, please stop by. Ask me a question or 20. Um, if there's one thing I love, it's talking about beer. As long as I have a beer in hand. I mean, you got to have priorities, right? <laughs> Thank you, Andy. You guys Thank have a you, great Andy. night. Thanks for coming to Savor. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2013, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Saver 2013, as well as all the salons from previous years at craftbeerradio.com slash saver or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.